Chapter Nineteen, Part One of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Nineteen, Part One Sandwich Islanders. Here was a change in my life as complete as it had been sudden. In the twinkling of an eye, I was transformed from a sailor into a beachcomber or a hide curer. Yet the novelty of the comparative independence of the life were not unpleasant. Our hide house was a large building made of rough boards and intended to hold forty thousand hides. In one corner of it, a small room was parted off, in which four berths were made, where we were to live with Mother Earth for our floor. It contained a table, a small locker for pots, spoons, plates, etc., and a small hole cut to let in the light. Here we put our chests, threw our bedding into the berths, and took up our quarters. Over our heads was another small room, in which Mr. Russell lived, who had charge of the hide-house, the same man who was, for a time, an officer of the pilgrim. There he lived in solitary grandeur, eating and sleeping alone, and these were his principal occupations, and communing with his own dignity. The boy, a marblehead hopeful, whose name was Sam, was to act as cook, while I, a giant of a Frenchman named Nicholas, and four Sandwich Islanders were to cure the hides. Sam, Nicholas, and I lived together in the room, and the four Sandwich Islanders worked and ate with us, but generally slept at the oven. My new messmate, Nicholas, was the most immense man that I had ever seen. He came on the coast in a vessel which was afterwards wrecked, and now let himself out to the different houses to cure hides. He was considerably over six feet, and of a frame so large that he might have been shown for a curiosity. But the most remarkable thing about him was his feet. They were so large that he could not find a pair of shoes in California to fit him, and was obliged to send to Oahu for a pair, and when he got them he was compelled to wear them down at the heel. He told me once that he was wrecked in an American brig on the Goodwin Sands, and was sent up to London, to the charge of the American consul, with scant clothing to his back and no shoes to his feet, and was obliged to go about London streets in his stocking feet three or four days in the month of January, until the consul could have a pair of shoes made for him. His strength was in proportion to his size, and his ignorance to his strength. Strong as an ox, and ignorant as strong. He knew neither how to read nor write. He had been to sea from a boy, had seen all kinds of service, and had been in all sorts of vessels, merchantmen, men-of-war, privateers, and slavers. And from what I could gather from his accounts of himself, and from what he once told me in confidence, afterward become better acquainted, he had been in even worse business than slave-trading. He was once tried for his life in Charleston, South Carolina, and, though acquitted, was so frightened that he would never show himself in the United States again. I was not able to persuade him that he could not be tried a second time for the same offense. He said that he had got safe off from the breakers and was too good a sailor to risk his timbers again. Though I knew what his life had been, yet I never had the slightest fear of him. We always got along very well together and though so much older, stronger, and larger than I, he showed a marked respect for me on account of my education, and of what he had heard of my situation before coming to sea. 
such as might be expected from a European of the humble class. "'I'll be good friends with you,' he used to say. "'For by and by you'll come out here a captain, and then you'll haze me well.' By holding together we kept the officer in good order, for he was evidently afraid of Nicholas, and never interfered with us except when employed upon the hides. My other companions, the Sandwich Islanders, deserve particular notice. A considerable trade has been carried on for several years between California and the Sandwich Islands, and most of the vessels are manned with Islanders, who, as they for the most part sign no articles, leave whenever they choose, and let themselves out to cure hides at San Diego, and to supply the places of the men left ashore from the American vessels while on the coast. In this way, a little colony of them had become settled at San Diego, as their headquarters. Some of these had recently gone off in the Ayacucho and the Laureate, and the pilgrim had taken Mr. Manini and three others, so that there were not more than twenty left. Of these, four were on pay at the Ayacucho's house, four more working with us, and the rest were living at the oven in a quiet way for their money was nearly gone, and they must make it last until some other vessel came down to employ them. During the four months that I lived here, I got well acquainted with all of them, and took the greatest pains to become familiar with their language, habits, and characters. Their language I could only learn orally, for they had not any books among them, though many of them had been taught to read and write by the missionaries at home. They spoke a little English, and by a sort of compromise, a mixed language was used on the beach, which could be understood by all. The long name of Sandwich Islanders is dropped, and they are called by the whites, all over the Pacific Ocean, Kanakas, from a word in their own language, signifying, I believe, man, human being, which they apply to themselves, and to all South Sea Islanders, in distinction from the whites, whom they call Haoli. This name, Kanaka, they answer to, both collectively and individually. Their proper names in their own language being difficult to pronounce or remember, they are called by any names which the captain or crews may choose to give them. Some are called after the vessels they are in, others by our proper names, as Jack, Tom, Bill, and some have fancy names as Banyan, Foretop, Rope Yarn, Pelican, etc., etc., of the four who worked in our house, one was named Mr. Bingham, after the missionary at Wahoo, another Hope, after a vessel he had been in, a third Tom Davis, the name of his first captain, and the fourth Pelican, from his fancied resemblance to that bird. Then there were Lagoda Jack, California Bill, etc., etc. But by whatever names they might be called, they were the most interesting, intelligent, and kind-hearted people that I ever fell in with. I felt a positive attachment for all of them, and many of them I have to this day a feeling for, which would lead me to go a great way for the pleasure of seeing them, and which will always make me feel a strong interest in the mere name of a Sandwich Islander. Tom Davis knew how to read, write, and cipher in common arithmetic, he had been to the United States and spoke English quite well. His education was as good as that of three-quarters of the Yankees in California, and his manners and principles a good deal better. And he was so quick of apprehension that he might have been taught navigation and the elements of many of the sciences with ease. 
old Mr. Bingham spoke very little English, almost none, and could neither read nor write. But he was the best-hearted old fellow in the world. He must have been over fifty years of age. He had two of his front teeth knocked out, which was done by his parents as a sign of grief at the death of Kamehameha, the great king of the Sandwich Islands. We used to tell him that he ate Captain Cook, and lost his teeth that way. That was the only thing that ever made him angry. He would always be quite excited at that, and say, Aloe! No. Me no eaty Captain Cook. Me pickaninny small, so high, no more. My father see Captain Cook. Me no. None of them liked to have anything said about Captain Cook, for the sailors all believed that he was eaten, and that they cannot endure to be taunted with. New Zealand Kanaka eat a white man. Sandwich Island Kanaka no. Sandwich Island Kanaka Ulaika Punawi Halui. All the same with you. Mr. Bingham was a sort of patriarch among them, and was treated with great respect, though he had not the education and energy which gave Mr. Manini his power over them. I have spent hours in talking with this old fellow about Kamehameha, the Charlemagne of the Sandwich Islands, his son and successor, Riho Riho, who died in England and was brought to Oahu in the frigate Blonde, Captain Lord Byron, and whose funeral he remembered perfectly and also about the customs of his boyhood, and the changes which had been made by the missionaries. He never would allow that human beings had been eaten there, and indeed it always seemed an insult to tell so affectionate, intelligent, and civilized a class of men that such barbarities had been practiced in their own country within the recollection of many of them. Certainly the history of no people on the globe can show anything like so rapid an advance from barbarism. I would have trusted my life, and all I had in the hands of any one of these people. And certainly, had I wished for a favor or act of sacrifice, I would have gone to them all, in turn, before I should have applied to one of my own countrymen on the coast, and should have expected to see it done before my own countrymen had got half through counting the cost. Their customs and the manner of treating one another show a simple, primitive generosity, which is truly delightful, and which is often a reproach to our own people. Whatever one has, they all have. Money, food, clothes, they share with one another, even to the last piece of tobacco to put in their pipes. I once heard old Mr. Bingham say, with the highest indignation, to a Yankee trader, who was trying to persuade him to keep his money to himself. No, we know all the same are you. Suppose one got money, all got money. You, suppose one got money, lock him up in a chest. No good. Kanaka ali same wani. This principle they carry so far, that none of them will eat anything in the sight of others without offering it all round. I have seen one of them break a biscuit, which had been given to him, into five parts, at a time when I knew he was on a very short allowance, as there was but little to eat on the beach. My favorite among all of them, and one who was liked by both officers and men, and by whomever he had anything to do with, was Hope. He was an intelligent, kind-hearted little fellow, and I never saw him angry, though I knew him for more than a year, 
and have seen him imposed upon by white people and abused by insolent mates of vessels. He was always civil, and always ready, and never forgot a benefit. I once took care of him when he was ill, getting medicines from the ship's chest, when no captain or officer would do anything for him, and he never forgot it. Every Kanaka has one particular friend, whom he considers himself bound to do everything for, and with whom he has a sort of contract, an alliance offensive and defensive, and for whom he will often make the greatest sacrifices. This friend they call Aikani, and for such did hope adopt me. I do not believe I could have wanted anything which he had that he would not have given me. In return for this, I was his friend among the Americans, and used to teach him letters and numbers, for he left home before he had learned how to read. He was very curious respecting Boston, as they called the United States, asking many questions about the houses, the people, etc., and always wished to have the pictures and books explained to him. They were all astonishingly quick in catching at explanations, and many things which I had thought it utterly impossible to make them understand, they often seized in an instant, and asked questions which showed that they knew enough to make them wish to go farther. The pictures of steamboats and railroad cars in the columns of some newspapers, which I had, gave me great difficulty to explain. The grading of the roads, the rails, the construction of the carriages, they could easily understand, but the motion produced by steam was a little too refined for them. I attempted to show it to them once by an experiment upon the cook's coppers, but failed, probably as much from my own ignorance as from their want of apprehension, and I have no doubt left them with about as clear an idea of the principle as I had myself. This difficulty, of course, existed in the same force with respect to the steamboats, and all I could do was to give them some account of the results and the shape of speed, for, failing in the reason, I had to fall back upon the fact. In my account of the speed I was supported by Tom, who had been to Nantucket and seen a little steamboat which ran over to New Bedford. And, by the way, it was strange to hear Tom speak of America, when the poor fellow had been all the way round Cape Horn and back, and had seen nothing but Nantucket. A map of the world which I once showed them kept their attention for hours. Those who knew how to read pointing out the places and referring to me for distances. I remember being much amused with a question which Hope asked me, pointing to the large, irregular place, which is always left blank round the poles, to denote that it is undiscovered. He looked up and asked, Pau? Done? Ended? The system of naming the streets and numbering the houses they easily understood, and the utility of it. They had a great desire to see America, but were afraid of doubling Cape Horn, for they suffer much in cold weather, and had heard dreadful accounts of the Cape from those of their number who had been round it. They smoke a great deal, though not much at a time using pipes with large bowls and very short stems, or no stems at all. These they light, and, putting them to their mouths, take a long draught, getting their mouths as full as they can hold of smoke, and their cheeks distended, and then let it slowly out through their mouths and nostrils. 
The pipe is then passed to others, who draw in the same manner, one pipeful serving for half a dozen. They never take short continuous draughts, like Europeans, but one of these Oahu puffs, as the sailors call them, serves for an hour or two until someone else lights his pipe, and it is passed round in the same manner. Each kanaka on the beach had a pipe, flint, steel, tinder, a hand of tobacco, and a jackknife, which he always carried about with him. Matches had not come into use then. I think that there were none on board any vessels on the coast. We used the tinder-box in our forecastle. That which strikes a stranger most peculiarly is their style of singing. They run on in a low, guttural, monotonous sort of chant, their lips and tongues seeming hardly to move, and the sounds apparently modulated solely in the throat. There is very little tune to it, and the words, so far as I could learn, are extempore. They sing about persons and things which are around them, and adopt this method when they do not wish to be understood by any but themselves, and it is very effectual, for with the most careful attention I never could detect a word that I knew. I have often heard Mr. Manini, who was the most noted improvisatore among them, sing for an hour together when at work in the midst of Americans and Englishmen, and by the occasional shouts of laughter the Kanakas, who were at a distance, it was evident that he was singing about the different men that he was at work with. They have great powers of ridicule, and are excellent mimics, many of them discovering and imitating the peculiarities of our own people before we had observed them ourselves. These were the people with whom I was to spend a few months, and who, with the exception of the officer, Nicholas the Frenchman, and the boy, made the whole population of the beach. I ought, perhaps, to accept the dogs, for they were an important part of our settlement. Some of the first vessels brought dogs out with them, who, for convenience, were left ashore, and there multiplied, until they came to be a great people. While I was on the beach, the average number was about forty, and probably an equal or greater number are drowned or killed in some other way every year. They are very useful in guarding the beach, the Indians being afraid to come down at night for it was impossible for any one to get within half a mile of the hide-houses without a general alarm. The father of the colony, old Sachem, so called from the ship in which he was brought out, died while I was there, full of years, and was honorably buried. Hogs and a few chickens were the rest of the animal tribe, and formed, like the dogs, a common company, though they were all known and usually fed at the houses to which they belonged. I had been but a few hours on the beach, and the pilgrim was hardly out of sight, when the cry of, "'Sail ho!' was raised, and a small hermaphrodite brig rounded the point, bore up into the harbor, and came to anchor. It was the Mexican brig, Fegio, which we had left at San Pedro, and which had come down to land her tallow, try it all over, and make new bags, and then take it in and leave the coast.' They moored ship, erected their tri-works on shore, and put up a small tent, in which they all lived, and commenced operations. This change in addition gave a variety to our society, and we spent many evenings in their tent, where, amid the babble of English, Spanish, French, Indian, and Kanaka, we found some words that we could understand in common. 
End of chapter 19, part 1